I'm going to ask you to remain standing because we're going to try something. So um, I'm a guest, and so you're just bearing with me. And when you're a guest, you can do these things. Um, I'm going I'm to ask us to start with a little sing-along. And so I'm going to sing. There's just three songs. They're not long. We won't do the whole song. We'll just wait until everybody's kind of chimed in. So you are going to have to sing and sing loud as soon as you pick up kind of what we're doing. And uh, it'll be great. I promise. It's going to go really, really well. But uh, let me start us. They're going to make sure that I don't sing too loudly into this mic and kind of tune me down here. But uh, you join in as soon as you know kind of what we're singing. These should all be relatively familiar. All right? All right. Just a little nod like, yeah, I'm in. Would be great. Okay, thank you. Um, it's so affirming, right? Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed? Nailed it. Nailed it. Okay. All right. You're, you're done. You're off the hook now. Uh, let's try this one. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night, the light from above. Okay. And you're off the hook again. All right. One, one more. Just one more for you. And this is for uh, the native Texans in the room. Here we go. Uh, the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Well done. Awesome. Y'all can have a seat. Um, thank you for entertaining me as um, I am obviously in the event that you missed any of, of what we were talking about. We're in Psalms. And um, those three songs specifically, uh, the Star-Spangled Banner, which uh, actually wasn't written during the American Revolution, was written in, uh, during the War of 1812 by Francis Scott Key. And uh, some interesting background to that that I won't go into, but uh, nonetheless, um, that becomes our national anthem uh, many years after we become a nation. Uh, God Bless America actually was written by a guy whose uh, birth name was Israel line. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his last name. He was a Jewish immigrant from Russia who, uh, when he became a citizen in 1918, in the same year he joined the army, became a citizen, reverse that. He became a citizen, joined the army, and wrote that song um, right there during World War I. And then uh, deep in the heart of Texas is just 1942, so I don't know that it has any really uh, major spiritual or warlike significance to our state, but for those of us who are native Texans, uh, it's, you know, it's just ingrained. If you're not a native Texan and you didn't take seventh grade Texas history, then maybe you have no idea what we're talking about, and you're just, you're just glad to be here, right, because it's the promised land. Um, but uh, I also thought about throwing out like Sweet Caroline to you and see if we could get like some ba ba ba. Um, but I wasn't sure how that would go over. There were some other songs that I was like, you know what, we might be a bunch of, uh, among a bunch of sinners. And um, honestly, uh, Garth Brooks and Friends in Low Places came to mind. But nonetheless, uh, I start with all of that because songs exist really as the most accessible form of theology to both teach and remember who we are. Uh, songs exist as the most accessible form of theology to both teach and remember who we are. And so um, what those songs mean to us as citizens of the United States, the Psalms are to Israel and the church. 
Um, certainly, we don't have the kind of affection, maybe, for some of those songs because uh, likely many of us didn't have to uh, sweat blood and tears and sacrifice in ways like our forebears did and those that have come before us. And yet, um, God created a way for humanity to flourish, and the Psalms echo his instruction and the history of his people to guide and to encourage us. And so, as we're looking at Psalm 1 this morning, I want to give a little bit of context uh, because honestly, it's, it's, uh, w- we celebrated Easter last Sunday and the Sunday before that here at Christ Redeemer, and um, now we're, we're jumping into Psalm 1. And um, the setting of Psalms is you've got 150 Psalms, almost half are written by King David uh, in five different books that are really brought together, again, to guide and instruct and encourage uh, the nation of Israel. And what was fascinating to me is I started to kind of, uh, I won't go into all kind of the, the Bible nerd details. Uh, I definitely went way deeper into this than I should have and may have wasted quite a bit of time. But nonetheless, it was fascinating to me. And, uh, and so just a handful of things that I thought was really interesting, uh, interesting. One was that Psalm 1 and 2 are actually historically a unit that introduce all of the Psalms. And the reason that that's believed, uh, in Jewish tradition, there is a, a, a kind of a writing or a collection of writings known as the Talmud that was like a commentary on the Old Testament or the, the Torah, uh, the Tanakh, if you will. And um, in that commentary, it said that every chapter that was particularly dear to King David, he began and ended with blessed. And so if you look at the first verse of Psalm 1, you see Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. And if you look at the last verse of Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in Jewish tradition, Psalm 1 and 2 were an introduction to the entirety of the book of Psalms. Additionally, in the Christian tradition, if you look at the oldest Greek text of the book of Acts, um, in Acts 33, originally it was quoted uh, Psalm 2-7, and it was called the first psalm. And yet, uh, because of some of the conventional numbering that has transpired since then with the Masoretes and so on, um, they changed it to the second psalm because that's how we number uh, the psalms today. If you look at just the scope of the psalms, Psalm 1 is addressing wisdom for individuals, and Psalm 2 is addressing prophecy for a king or a nation. It was also believed to be like a coronation psalm, that they would sing together when the king came and was anointed and placed on the throne. And so uh, some of these things, again, are uh, maybe more evident as you read through the Psalms. If you think about, if you've studied the Psalms, you see parallelism in, in many cases where they're juxtaposing. We'll see that in Psalm 1 today. And if you look at other passages like Psalm 119 or even Psalm 150 at the very end, you see more of a rhythm of uh, almost like a rap. And we don't know enough about the Psalm. The, the history did not carry forward to know what all uh, um, a 
Miskal is and, and so on uh, in regards to some of how the Jews sung and worshipped these songs together. Like we don't know if they had a guitar and a drum set back here with a little shield or maybe they didn't like the shield so they took that down or maybe they were plugged in or maybe it was all unplugged. They did the lyre and they had the tambourine. We kind of think that was thrown in there and they might have been dancing and those kinds of things but we honestly don't know and so in some ways we've kind of made it up as we've gone and yet appreciated that the lyrics of the word in the same way that Francis Scott Key didn't write the tune to Star Spangled Banner, but just gave us the words, um, that, that that's what we're uh, studying, that's what we're looking at and enjoying. And then lastly, uh, what's interesting as a Jewish literature um, tool or mechanism is uh, this thing called a chiasm. And so the Jews loved to, in order to make their point, like in English literature, whenever you're making your point, you, you wait till almost the end, right, to the, the climax of the story, and that's where it all kind of rings true, and you bring the story together, but that's not the way it works in Jewish literature. In Jewish literature, it's right in the middle. It's this reflective work that the, the end and the beginning mirror each other, and then the next points mirror each other, and then once you get to the middle, that's the crux of what's trying to be focused on. And here we'll see in Psalm 1-3, as it says, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Now, why do I share all of this? Like, in some ways, this is just, okay, great context for, for the book of Psalms. And yeah, I want to ask, um, if you have ever sung a song that moved you that reminded you of the gravity of your life. Uh, it may have been something that was celebratory. It may have been a season of life that was crushing, uh, where you experienced suffering. Uh, it could be that you were just overjoyed, overwhelmed. Uh, I know that for our family, it is like, turn that thing up to 11, and we are going to sing so loud. I'll never forget uh, we were traveling the country, and we were driving into New York City through the Lincoln Tunnel. And uh, one of our youngest sons, uh, we were singing a Taylor Swift song, uh, Welcome to New York, all right? Uh, for those of you who, if that's culturally relevant to anybody in the room, if that's blasphemy for others, uh, God forgive me. Um, nonetheless, uh, we're driving in, only he pronounced it Unork. Uh, welcome to you, Nork. And so as we're going through the tunnel, we are screaming at the top of our lungs. So excited to go to New York City. You can see the skyscrapers from miles away. It really is this like, kind of like, what is happening over there? What, like, is that a mountain? And um, yet we are going through the Lincoln Tunnel with Taylor on uh, T-Swift on 11 singing, welcome to you, Nork. Welcome to you, Nork. Um, just tons of fun. And so there are things like that that are celebratory and fun and, and somehow uh, still meaningful. And yet uh, there's lots of other times where uh, we just quiet ourselves and we sing and we reflect on the majesty of the work of God. And Psalm 1, is, as we just did our kind of responsive scripture reading with one another, like you can see it woven throughout scripture as the psalmist is reflecting on the work of God. And even as the New Testament writers are looking back at Psalm 1 and, and getting to see it unpack in passages like Galatians, in passages like in Romans 2. And so um, for us, I, I think, we hear these songs 
And we long for our existence and our activity to be consequential. In many ways, uh, you know, we've, we've lost our grip on um, what it is to have uh, not just this feeling of significance, but answering the question of like, God, what are you doing with me here? And so it's um, sometimes in our safety that we feel like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't need to pursue righteousness because uh, I, I don't really have needs. Or maybe it might be in our passivity that's just kind of drawn to that because there's just not a lot going on in life. It's like, what's the new series coming out on Netflix? I guess that's what we're going to spend our time doing. And the more that we find ourselves trapped in that and just flipping through our phones, you're asking the question, I'm asking the question, God, to, to what end, to what purpose is this life that I'm living? Or am I just passing time? Am I just paying bills? Am I just going to school, sitting in a spot, listening to somebody lecture, filling in some blanks, and then moving on? Is it busyness or, or it could just be hopelessness? and brokenness that has us just going, God, what is, what is the weight of my life? And so I want to share what the poet had to say to Israel and then what the poet has to say to us about God's design for blessing and growth and protection for the righteous life. And then in each of those, I want to give us three exercises. So you got some homework, three exercises um, following each of those points to help us pursue righteousness. That it's not something that just uh, God drops on us and goes, there, you're done, finished. That there's this process of sanctification that God's working out in his time that we get to enjoy. And so Psalm 1, again, starting in verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take. Or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So first we see, we see a blessing for the righteous life where uh, the, the poet is comparing the sinner and the blessed. And it begs the question, uh, not that I, I necessarily have some accusation or some foreknowledge, and yet in, in every church, in every room you're in, the wicked are there. Uh, the sinner, the mocker is there. An evil that is aggressive towards God because of an inflated uh, false confidence that's born out of an insecurity, knowing that you're just not in control. Um, and so I don't want to miss the opportunity to make the accusation. Uh, I've been in any number of churches where it, it's just been a matter of time where we've seen somebody walk away from the church or somebody that just has a death grip on being there so that they can fly under the radar. And it, it's not that anybody's confessed anything that I necessarily know of as much as is, uh, I'm I'm just inviting you to repentance. The wicked, the sinner, the mocker. If you in your pride, if you in your insecurity, uh, and maybe you just as a young adult 
and I don't share any of this because I'm unfamiliar with it. I remember the years of my wickedness. I remember the years of my sinfulness. I remember the years when I mocked God. And yet, I want to invite you to be clean. That you wouldn't exist in that insecurity any longer. uh, That you wouldn't hide in the shadows. And yet, for many of us, um, being that wicked, that sinner, uh, that mocker, it isn't necessarily the issue that we're wrestling with. Even the psalmist points out to it as he says... um, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. And so I I think maybe a more appropriate question for us is, are we the passive who are content walking with the wicked, standing in the way of sinners or sitting amongst mockers? Do we find ourselves just sheepishly standing aside, sitting aside, You know, we're not actively engaging in wickedness. We're not the ones that are pursuing evil. We're not the ones dreaming up what it might be like to uh, commit some crime or do some heinous act or to speak ill against anyone. And yet, in our very presence, we find ourselves giving approval. And so this isn't an encouragement necessarily to, uh, to isolate and to insulate yourself and to not be in the world knowing that uh, if that's the case, then we, we can't be here at all, uh, but that we are meant to be wheat among the chaff. And so I think what happens to us is we find ourselves in a life just compromising and then sort of disassociating from God, where we're like half in and we're half out, where we're just kind of riding the fence and, and we do so, I think, many times because we're not convinced in our faith. We lack courage, and so we look for courage in others, and we play games of comparison, and uh, we numb ourselves because maybe we're disappointed about the hand that we've been dealt because we're not rich enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not skinny or strong enough, we're not popular enough, we're not smart enough. And again, I, this isn't an accusation to you. This is just a reflection of what God's done in my heart. Like, this was me. The one who is looking around and going, gosh, I I don't have what he has. And so who who is this good God? And yet the passage turns in verse 2, but whose delight, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. It's the reciprocal effect of delighting and meditating We delight in the law, and the law becomes our preoccupation. Anybody feel that? Like, have have you ever read through, um, let's just, let's pick Lamentations. Have you ever read through Lamentations and been like, yes, God, that is sweet to my ears. Like, if you were like me, you hit like chapter one and a half of Leviticus and you went, can't do it and moved right on to Matthew, or you went and found James because that was like highly applicable and only like five or six chapters. Um, 
And you just went, look, I, I need some more meat than this. Like, I don't connect to the law of the Lord. Uh, our senior pastor, Blake Holmes, was meeting with our team. Uh, this is a couple weeks ago. Our team's been walking through the spiritual disciplines, and um, one of our elders came and shared about Bible study and just how he does that. Really fascinating and encouragement to us. And then Blake came and taught us on the spiritual discipline of meditation. And he gave us this passage, and for the better part of like 10 minutes, we just sat in silence kind of around this square of tables, and, um, and we just meditated on God's Word. And afterwards, uh, we started to just talk about what had transpired in that time, and, and what had shifted, and what had happened in our hearts. And um, initially, it was awkward, right? It was silent. And we found ourselves kind of like, you know, you can hear people sniffling and it's distracting and your phone's, you know, notifications are going off and it's just obnoxious. And you're wondering like, what is the point? And then as you begin to fight your own thoughts to quiet your mind and to still your heart, and as you continue to read through the passage over and over and over again, you start to feel the work of the Holy Spirit slow you down so that your priority might not be intaking more information, but intimacy with God. I don't know if you felt that, like we've got these worship services and I'm not trying to go 45 minutes, I'm just saying uh, we're often like, hey guy, 30 minutes and your time's up, right? Uh, let's get through the songs, let's get through the thing, and we're going to get back home, and we're going to do whatever it is that we've got going on, as opposed to, hey, God, would, would you allow us to come and meet with you? Would you slow our hearts? Would you pause all of our busyness, all of our hurriedness, so that we could meditate on your word? The word meditate is Hagah in Hebrew. And Haggah does not actually translate meditate. It actually translates mutter. And uh, if you've ever been around me when I'm reading a book, you've been annoyed because the way that I read is just quietly muttering the words out loud. Uh, it's super obnoxious. My wife will tell you. And, um, and yet, this is some, uh, a sense of like onomatopoeia uh, this word Hagah, it's actually translated as like the sound that a pigeon makes as it coos, uh, the low growl of a bear or a lion. And so this meditation is like chewing the cud for a cow that is, is taking in, chewing on God's word, regurgitating it over and over like it's gross. And yet I think for so many of us, like we could read right through Psalm 1 and move right on to Psalm 2 and then on to Psalm 3 and then kind of whenever our time is up, we're done. But God invites us to intimacy. The spiritual discipline of meditation is not one of emptying yourself as much as it is of asking the Holy Spirit to fill us up and help us overflow so that our lives might have consequence, might have bearing on those that we're with, on those that we're around, that our children would look at us and go, yeah, Dad, there's, there's, there's substance to your faith. It is inescapable. 
the way you delight in the law of the Lord. And again, I, I don't know that I can explain how or when Leviticus became dear to me. But at some point, as God was sanctifying me, I began to unpack uh, just the wonders of God's word and delight in them. And as I delighted in them, uh, they became my preoccupation where I would meditate on his word day and night. And so just as an exercise to help us pursue righteousness, this righteous way that God's provided, uh, I want to encourage us this week in your devotional time to meditate on Psalm 1 to identify an image or an everyday object that's connected to the psalm and then prioritize intimacy rather than just intake. Rather than just kind of getting through the book that we would slow ourselves down. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. You might just ask this week, um, where are you taking steps? Are you cognizant of the steps you are taking? So you look at your feet and the places that you are and the seats that you're in. This can, this can get overkill. We can hyper-spiritualize this, and yet that's not usually our ditch. Our ditch is hurriedness that we would miss out. And so in whatever seats you're in, are you sitting in the company of mockers? Or have you brought to bear a consequential work of God in every seat that you're in? Secondly, in verses 3 and following, again, I, I shared at the beginning that this is really the crux of the passage there in the middle of the chiasm. It says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. And so not only does God provide blessing for this righteous life, he provides growth. And we don't, we don't just get stuck in one spot that is up and to the left, that he is sanctifying us, that he is moving in us. And this idea of the planted tree, uh, in the Hebrew it's ayet shetal, and uh, it, it doesn't just translate planted, it translates transplanted. And all kinds of biblical imagery starts to come along with this idea of the tree and the stream that flow uh, alongside the tree that, that nourish it. And if you follow like the Bible Project, which is an incredible resource that uh, I've become a great fan of, there's a whole series when they first got started just on trees, just following and tracking trees throughout Scripture and seeing what kind of imagery it was pointing back to. And so what should be coming to mind here, and certainly what would have come to mind for the psalmist, would have been Genesis 2, where Eden has the tree of life and the river flowing through the garden that nourishes the whole garden. Like there, there might be some other trees in Scripture that are coming to mind with Moses at the burning bush and, and uh, Jesus on the cross as it says he was hung on a tree. Like that language is intentional. 
But as we get to Revelation, as we see Revelation 22, there again we find the tree of life and the river from the water of life that flows out from the throne of God and his Messiah. This is the biblical imagery that the psalmist is pointing us back to so that those who have ears would hear. But the critical theological point, the the central point here is, as we just talked about, delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. There's not a single one of us in this room that transplanted ourselves that went, nope, this soil's bad. I'm going to up and move over to this stream. That it is the work of God to move us to delight in his word. I think of Hebrews 4.12 that says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That as we begin to delight in the Lord, as we begin to meditate on his word, as we read scripture, scripture turns around and reads us. We find ourselves being transplanted next to the stream that makes it possible for us to yield fruit in season, to not have our leaves wither, and to prosper in everything that we do. We know ourselves well enough that um, we, don't, we don't have enough willpower. We don't have enough knowledge. Like we know those things fail us. That, that, like think about your New Year's resolutions. It's, it's not even May yet. And for many of us, we, we can't even like turn that page back in the journal and be like, oh yeah, I've done a good job of keeping those up. Right? We don't have the willpower. And in some ways, that's the point of God stepping in and going, no, I'm transplanting the tree next to the stream so that you might be nourished. I give you a new heart and a new spirit, says Ezekiel, chapter 36. And over time, as our roots grow deep, as we find ourselves not just flippantly going like, ah, like I don't understand Leviticus, and so I'm just going to skip over to the parts that are easy, that translate to a modern American relevant kind of idea of how I live life and what I'm doing here. And we miss the richness of God. That we rush through Psalm 1 in an effort to get through all 150 as quickly as possible that we miss the depth of what God desires to give to us, that we would, we would be consequential in our lives, that our lives would bear weight, which then takes us to verse 4. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Now, for those of us that sit at desks and punch buttons on computers most of our day uh, that have never seen acreage, uh, that have only ever driven by a large field of maize or corn or 
uh, wheat or cotton or whatever it is that uh, is grown, especially north of us, uh, we've got no real reference for this idea of chaff. And yet, um, you look at passages like Matthew 3.12, where it talks about Jesus having the winnowing fork in his hand as he separates the wheat from the chaff. And uh, I honestly had to look this up. Like, I grew up in Frisco before Frisco was Frisco, and yet I still have absolutely no experience with tractors or farms or ranches or any of these things. And yet what would happen is, is they would go and harvest the wheat. They would bundle it. They would bring it into uh, their storehouses, and then they would beat it to death. And yet, then they had all the pieces there laying on the floor, and they would take this fork, and they would throw all of the contents up in the air, and what was inconsequential, what was um, waste, would get caught by the wind because it had no substance. And it would float away, and what would drop back to the floor were the kernels of wheat. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Lacking substance. I've, in my day, looked and been like, are, are the wicked prospering? Are they really doing as well as it seems they are? Is the person who mocks God really as convinced? Are they more convinced in their mocking than I am in my faith? Have they really figured something out that I haven't figured out? Do they know something I don't know? Have I been duped? Why why do the, the nations rage against God? Why do they not uphold justice? Why is our nation in such turmoil? I don't mean to fear monger as much as I just mean to to resonate with the idea of like we look around and we're like, good grief. What is going on? And as emphatically as I can tell you, maybe only for a time, but the lostness and the confusion and the insecurity and recognition of the futility of their own lives, knowing they don't make themselves breathe and they will not endure death. Friends, do not be jealous. And don't find yourselves in a life of compromise, getting pulled towards, well, if I can just gain some more things and kind of keep up with them, they, they look like they're having a really fun time. Their sing-alongs are way cooler than ours. (laughs) And that we would not miss the substance, the consequence of righteousness. And so just as an exercise, again, trying to encourage us to pursue righteousness, I want to ask you to identify one area outside of your home where you have consequence in serving in your community. Because honestly, leading our homes is like table stakes, being like, well, like we're going to pray for that. Uh, this, is, this is table stakes for the Christian life. That we would find ourselves on our knees petitioning God, yes. And yet God has given us breath and life and skill and gifting that we would go and have consequence on our community. That in our workplaces or in our schools or wherever it is that we might be, 
that as people turn and look, this isn't like an encouragement to be bold and brag or to be confrontational, that every opportunity that somebody comes along and says something wicked or whatever, that it's now your turn. Like, I'm not encouraging you necessarily towards that. That might be your gifting. You might raise your hand and go, that's exactly what God gifted me for. And you might go and engage that faithfully and gently and respectfully, having an answer for everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Or, and you might be that meek, gentle spirit that is so set apart, that is so distinct. I feel like I've, I've embraced so few of these people. There's some in this room there's a guy at our church named Paul Coppage, and every time I see Paul, I set everything down because he, he emulates, like Jesus radiates from this guy. And yet, every time I talk to him, it's in a still small voice, a sweet whisper, a tender embrace and hug with this man that honestly gets a little awkward for the people around us because I've come to love him so much. And so this isn't an exercise for you to get outside of how God has gifted you as much as it is for you to identify where are the, the places that you're investing your life that are bringing consequence on the community, that are bringing the gospel to bear. And then lastly, verses 5 and 6, it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Um, do I have any like zombie apocalypse friends that are out here, like just fans of you love a good zombie apocalypse? Okay, so thank you. Um, so we're, we're in Salt Lake City, and uh, we're staying there, and we find out from a friend that they're going to have this conference called PrepperCon. It's exactly what it sounds like. It was amazing. I mean, the nerd fest was unreal. The people watching was high quality. But we got in there, and there are people that you were just like, how did you even think of that? Are you sure that food can really last like another hundred years in that container you created? Um, there were all kinds of cool things and tents and trucks and weapons. And I mean, it was, it was really sweet. And so because our family and, and myself specifically is kind of into the zombie apocalypse. Now, whether or not that's ever going to happen, I don't know. Probably not, right? That, that'd be weird. Um, that's not really seeming like how God's going to end it. But since he's kind of already given us revelation, I didn't read zombies anywhere in there unless y'all read something in there. But... Um, when you think about how people are preparing for a zombie apocalypse, like in any show or movie you've ever seen, you've kind of followed along with that maybe, or the Doomsday Prepper show, if you got into that, um, however many years ago that was, what you recognized was that in every single one of those scenarios, there was an engagement and an invitation and an equipping of others to prepare. That you wouldn't wait until the crisis had already happened and then start to build trust and find friends and start to delegate who's got what skills and how are we going to survive? Because those people, they die. In the zombie apocalypse movies, those people go first. It's the people with skills and friends and companionship and a fellowship that are protected. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. 
For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And the wicked don't stand in the judgment because they're isolated and they're independent and inauthentic. Because they've been required to put walls up to project a sense of strength, to project a sense of control. nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, that we won't find our compromised friends, um, those of us that have lived this kind of passive, half-in, half-out life in the assembly, that they will have disqualified themselves but that it's a community of leaders that's prepared for conflict and accountability and responsibility and celebration. We see all these things throughout the Psalms. We see all these things throughout Scripture. We see the mistakes that Israel makes. We see the mistakes that disciples make. And yet we see the repair and the reconciliation that happens because the righteous have delighted in the law of the Lord. They've been planted by a stream that they would bear their fruit in season. That the Lord watches over the righteous. And so lastly is, is just a, an exercise to, to, to pursue righteousness. I, I want to encourage you, uh, and this may be the most difficult of the three exercises, because uh, the first two are really things you can do on your own. Um, the last one's more difficult. Uh, it requires an audacious authenticity. Because most of the time when we get together as Christian communities, we share some updates and we talk about some things and it, like, it's kind of nice things. It's like, well, you know, our kids are doing this and you know, we've got this kind of vacation coming up or busyness or we did come across this conflict, but you know, we figured it out. And so really what happens is we end up, we end up capping, we end up restricting the work of the Holy Spirit among us that we would be authentically known and this is dangerous ground, right? Because like as soon as you say, hey, well, I, I want somebody to speak into my marriage. I want somebody to speak into my parenting. Nobody does that. I want somebody to speak into my finances. Right? Like nobody's opened up their bank account and going, let me know if you think I'm being a good steward of God's resources here. Would you speak into that? But what kind of community of people would we be? What kind of protection would we have if we stewarded our resources in ways where we took those who are wise among us, who have gone before us and who have experienced some things that we haven't experienced, whether it's marriage or finance or parenting or, or even our own health, and just gone, like, could I speak into that for you? Of course. Like, I would welcome that. That this week, when you gather to have that kind of audacious authenticity so that you might experience the protection of the righteous life, that it will not be found as long as we continue to just kind of keep people at arm's length. We don't invite one another into our homes or we don't rush around and clean everything up before everybody walks in trying to put on our best face, but we invite others in, we host them well, and we go, this is us. This is what our life really looks like. I know you only engage with us for about 30 seconds as we kind of pass each other on a Sunday morning, but this is what it's like day in and day out. That you engage with one another in your places of work. That you would parent your children together. 
And so just as a recap, your three pieces of homework this week, meditate on Psalm 1, identify one area that you're serving or need to be serving in your community, and practice authenticity. Because I, I, I think the mark of righteousness in us is when we stop telling God no, that we realize what we're missing out on. The, the tree never says to the stream, stop, enough, I don't want more water. The tree looks at the stream and says, yes, more. I'm filled up and overflowing. That we might say, yes, God. What else? What else do you have for me? How else might I faithfully walk with you? Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, but not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked leads to destruction. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, um, for the songs that we sing that remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness. Songs that that give us an accessible form of who you are, that teach us and remind us of who we are. The Psalms that echo your instruction to the history of your people, to guide them, to protect them, to bless them, to help them mature and grow. God, help, help us be encouraged by your word as you have transplanted us to the waters that bring life. God, you are so kind to lead us to repentance. Help us worship you and respond now. We pray these things in Christ's able, holy, and powerful name. Amen.